God, dig that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, repeat after me. Sabrina's Dirty Deeds. <laughs> oh, good day, Sab. Good day, Josh. Good to have you back. Hello, Jamie. Uh, this episode is uh, brought to us by our good mates at the uh, the Calamander Plant Company, some people that you're pretty familiar with. Yeah, because um, Andrew uh, grows everything organically. So he grows all the edible food, including medicinal stuff and herbs. So there's no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides. Um, so when you buy those little plants and put them in your own garden, you know they're safe to eat for a start. Um, but also he's he's growing some of the wonderful old perennials that you can't get anywhere else. So a lot of those old perennials are fantastic for bees and butterflies and to bring beneficials in. And, of course, Andrew, the Calamunda Plant Company, uh, they do the Calamunda um, Garden Festival where they bring in growers from all over WA. Well, not this month, but uh, next month they're going to do it online so that people can still see all the produce that's made up in the hills, local growers, and buy their stuff, you know, straight from the from WA. So yeah, beauty. They're a, well, they're a mob. Had a good yarn last week. Um, talked about a lot of things. Covered some ground, Josh. Talked about your early days as a 14-year-old in the veggie patch um, and then kind of fast-forwarded a little bit to, you know, things you're clearly passionate about and, and work hard at now and sustainability, um, urban infill. And there was, there was kind of something in urban infill that stuck with me a little bit since we chatted and it was around you were talking about the need for good design, uh, for good planning and, and creativity. But obviously for those things to happen, you need a lot of different groups to work well together, be it government, uh, be it planners, um, you know, all those kind of people in the chain. Is that happening more now? Are you seeing more examples of it across the state and the country? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so here in WA, you know, we, we have some very talented um, design practitioners and a good community of practice, if you like, between architects and landscape architects, uh, urban planners. Uh, and I think everyone who is in the industry and cares uh, is aware that, you know, we need to be doing things better collectively. Uh, and um, what we've noticed really over the last um, four or five years is, um, you know, some, some pretty clear response from from state government who, who have jurisdiction uh, over, you know, planning, obviously, uh, also, um, uh, you know, a lot of the infrastructure servicing um, domain as well, is there is an awareness that we need to be doing more to ensure Perth uh, continues to be uh, a highly livable uh, place to be. Uh, in um, recognition of the fact that we have a, a growing population and that density is required to uh, meet that growing population. But how do we do that better in a way that... that there is some excellent design guidance coming out now. There's a, a body of work referred to as um, Design WA, mm -hmm. uh, which is being uh, delivered by uh, Department of, of Planning. Uh, and it um, has a series of chapters that address apartments, precincts, uh, and the idea is, is that it provides a set of robust guidelines for not only design practitioners but also local government yep. when they get to their level of planning approvals 
to have precedence and to have guidance. Um, now, these are relatively new. Uh, they were developed with uh, significant stakeholder um, and practitioner participation, uh, but they're still being tested on ground. Uh, and my hope is that they continue to get refined um, and uh, and certainly um, as we look to um, see Perth continue to grow and mature, the level of expectation from the community, from design professionals and from the development industry itself uh, needs to continue to to increase so so we get good outcomes. Yeah. So just on that, like, so, you know, last week you talked about sort of the, the bigger picture of that. But let's sort of bring it down to your own backyard. So take my backyard, for example. Well, not literally because I still live here. <laughs> but um, so, so I've got the old quarter acre block. I've got the little three bedroom, one bathroom home. Um, so, and when I kick the bucket, you know, I'd hate to think that this, that every single tree in my place would be denuded and there'd be three really hideous, poorly designed, poorly built houses in its place. So, so let's take this, for example, if I wanted two dwellings on here, um, what's, what's the possibility mm, for that to happen? Sure. What, what process would you go sure. through? So um, firstly, uh, you look to the local planning scheme to see what it will allow um, yep. in terms of um, numbers of dwellings uh, mm -hmm. on, uh, on a site. And, and as you've mentioned, in this particular area, uh, subdivision uh, allowing at least two, potentially three dwellings, depending on the size of the block, is, is allowed, provided it meets the residential design codes, yep. uh, which is, again, state guidance that local government looks to to, to, um, uh, to approve um, at, that, at that planning level. Uh, unfortunately, what's happened is that it, often um, people want to maximise the value of their block, and, they, and that's often then seen as a way of building as much out as you can uh, because it's expected that's what the market wants. There are more creative ways you can go about it. And if your intention is to live here, mm. then you can design uh, that development in a way that meets your needs. And so, for example, assuming you want to stay here, yep. uh, you may decide to retain the existing cottage, which is beautiful. You've done it up. It, it, it works for you. Uh, you've got a backyard that has existing trees. So a standard... Uh, volume build off the plan home design in this area, in this space, is going to be a challenge because you would mm. impact uh, not only some of the existing trees immediately in terms of their location, but also their root zone. Yes. So yeah. so what that then suggests is if you, if you want to keep these trees, and I'm assuming you do, and, and that's that's of importance to you and the surrounding mm. neighbourhood. Yes. This is the thing. These are neighbourhood assets. They're they treated are. As, they're yeah. treated as private property, but they're neighbourhood assets. Yeah. Um, but difficult to protect uh, protect trees legally on private property, and that, that's a conundrum. Yeah. Anyway, um, good design can work around that. There's opportunities for smaller footprint buildings, uh, for lightweight and prefabricated buildings that can be built off-site and brought in and reassembled. Uh, and we're not talking cheap dollars here. We're talking mm. high quality. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I've done yeah, I've done, 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 I've done, done dongles. No, 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 I'm no. not doing dongles so, so, again. Some great examples of, of buildings that can be located into um, sensitive garden environments like this uh, so you can protect the tree root zone uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, uh, still create a beautiful dwelling. You may not need a three-by-two in the backyard. Mm. You might find someone who uh, may want a one-bedroom, one-bathroom with, with, with a study or a living space. 
Um, so there's there's opportunities for for creativity there. City of Fremantle have got a really good policy, um, which is called the uh, ancillary dwelling scheme. Right. So so this is basically um, it was originally brought in as a trial, uh, which won them a state planning award. Uh, as a, and it was done as a way of trying to facilitate more affordable housing and diverse housing in the city of Fremantle. Right. Prices are going up. People are being yep. squeezed out, uh, and recognizing that not everyone needs a big home. Hmm nor can they afford it. So the ancillary scheme basically has immediate planning. No need to put it through oh, wow. planning for um, for uh, self-contained, um, separately keyed um, granny flats, if you like, yes, up yes. to 90 square metres. Right. So whereas typically in areas where you can get a granny flat in, it's only for family or relatives. Yeah, right? yeah, whereas under um, th this scheme, other people who aren't related can actually rent it out. Yep. Uh, yep. And um, under that 90 square metre footprint, you don't need the planning approval. Yep. You still need building licence, clearly, yeah, to yeah. make well, sure it's safe and sound and, and quality. Yeah. Yeah. But this is fantastic because yeah. it's meant that people, uh, in many cases, were able to formally have granny flats that are already done, um, <laughs> you know, le made legitimate. Yeah. Uh, but it is also this, and there's some great examples of really creative, um, you know, little Fonzie flats over the garage, uh, or which is a cool term, back to happy days, of course, uh, or... Um, uh, other, you know, ancillary dwellings that are highly livable for people. They could be students, they could be retired people, yep. it could be, uh, you know, a, a single person at a stage of their life or whatever. Yep. It's about providing diversity. Yeah. The other side of the, the opportunity is something more permanent. Um, and if we look what we did um, at our place, and hopefully your listeners who watch um, Gardening Australia would see it, we bought um, a large block, quarter acre. It had a small timber frame cottage on it, which had well and truly um, outlived its design life. Uh, so um, we bought that as a development site. Uh, again, um, the planning um, approvals through that area allowed for um, battle axe subdivisions, so mm -hmm. uh, front house and then yep. driveway down the side and back house. back house. To be honest, it's a pretty ugly form of, of infill. Right. Again, you normally lose the trees as yep. well as you've got this disconnect between the back house and, and the streetscape. The yeah. uh, and, 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 and people drive down the driveway, you know, go into their carport, into the house, and, and they never see the community. And they, they it's, it's, have no idea no, who's in out the front, yeah, out the front verse. That's it, or, mm. or over the fence. It's a pretty yeah. ugly, you know, kind yeah. of outcome. That said, it's very common because it's easy. So uh, we bought that block, when I say we, my family and my sister-in-law. Yes. Um, and that was done really through sort of financial necessity. Yep. We wanted um, a, a block when we were at that stage in our life where we were raising families. We wanted space around us. We didn't want an apartment. Uh, we wanted a garden. Yep. Uh, so we bought it together, co-designed and co-developed and built two small family homes, mm -hmm. um, one in the front for Lisa, one in the back for us. But we co-designed the, um, the property. So we were able to locate the houses and size the footprints in such a way where we optimised effective garden space between them. Nice front yard and streetscape that addresses the street with a seating area, so we have that community interface. Um, private garden spaces for both homes that face north, which are lovely, but then a big shared garden space in between, which has our veggies and our chook pen and our compost bays and our nursery, and that's the space in between. Also, the way we designed it, we put a, um, a property boundary gate on the driveway and the driveway on the south side it's a yes. driveway down to our block so we're not putting the driveway over the best sunny part which yeah, is now our private yeah. gardens it's amazing how often that still happens which is nuts because people design without thinking about it but driveway on the south but because we have that that driveway gate at the front of the property um we were able to um speak with lisa and she was comfortable with not requiring any 
internal fences around her place. Normally, ah. when you go, when you arrive at a battle axe subdivider block, they're hideous. You've got this long driveway. Yep. Uh, and either side, is, you've got your Stratco, you know, metal fence. Uh, and you're just wide enough to get a car down there and some mm. crappy token narrow garden beds, you know, yep. full of weeds or yep. dead plants because yep. it's so hostile and, and hot. Uh, <laughs> Nothing and, and of course, grow. you've got paving and then a big ugly soak wall down the end to take all that storm yep. water. Yep. So uh, by not having to put those internal fences in, we have this sense of borrowed landscape and space. Uh, we uh, put in a gravel driveway, which is highly permeable to storm mm. water, mm. a big planting strip down the middle. Uh, and what that meant is that narrow strip um, that ran down between the fence and the gravel driveway of only 600 mil, we've planted that up with um, a number of trellis fruit trees and understory plantings, but it has the root zone under that gravel to actually be able to sustain ah, itself. Yes. So, so what was normally a, a kind of a goat track, um, you know, driveway down to the back house is now a lovely arrival. Lisa looks out into a, a beautiful landscape space, which also happens to double as a driveway. Yep. But then we've got this space in between with our veggies. So so it's, it's really about... Um, uh, how we make the outdoor spaces really well, uh, work really well. Now, of course, from a house performance perspective, um, we've considered sustainability very strongly as well. So we designed both homes yep. to be 10-star net has rated homes, so they are thermally comfortable year-round without the need for air conditioning. Uh, both homes generate more energy than they use. Uh, they collect and recycle most of their own water. Uh, and we did all this using a volume builder, uh, to our collaborative design um, in a way that was very cost-effective and can be done uh, by industry now. Yes. And what we wanted to demonstrate is that not only is there a more sensitive way to subdivide in these spaces, but also the way we build these homes, even using volume builders, which are the most cost-effective way to do it typically, um, is that you can still have a high-performance home that's very comfortable if you get the design right. And you spend a little bit more time in the design phase, you can still deliver the home very cost effectively to a much better outcome. Yeah. And whilst the homes themselves are quite modest, very, very comfortable, highly efficient, for us it's the landscape that really makes the place special. Uh, and, you know, in a climate like Perth, where we're all outdoors so much, yeah. particularly if the space is designed to accommodate that, but also the way we design homes, every window which are all located to capture, you know, warming yeah, light yeah, and yeah. natural light in the winter. Um, every window looks out onto lovely green space, yeah. not onto fences. All the fences are cloaked in vines or your mass plantings or whatever. So all of these things are very possible. They're built. They don't have to cost a huge amount of money. It just takes thought and time. But that's a whole that's a whole paradigm shift, isn't it, of sharing a space? And I think that's the you know, the sad thing about the last 20 years of design is particularly in uh, when when blocks are subdivided and developed. It's this space is my space. I don't want to look out on anyone else. I don't want anyone looking in on me. So it's that whole shift of, okay, we're, we're in close proximity. Why don't we share this space mm. and design it together? Yeah so that the outcomes for both of us are, are, are much better. Yeah, and the way we designed that space in between the two homes, um, there's no commonly owned area. Right. Uh, because we did this in a way that we're mindful that one or the other might move out at some stage. We don't see that happening anytime soon. But also we wanted to show that this can be done um, for mainstream. You know, we're not hippies in a commune here. 
Uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Houston Communes, but <laughs> we, we wanted to make sure that people didn't perceive us as that and yeah, therefore yeah. not do it. Yeah. So um, really, that space in between, and again, your listeners would see me in there all the time, you know, on the show, that space in between is just the backyard of Lisa's house and the front yard of our house in the back there, side by side with no fence in between. Ah. And the way we laid out all the elements uh, in such a way where nothing straddles that property line that just doesn't happen to have a fence so, so it's actually very sensible in mm. terms of not investing in stuff that needs to be damaged later on. Um, the other thing which is worth noting is the way that we design the homes is that we, we design them as if we might live there forever. Now, we're probably unlikely to because, um, one, I've got a niche to design and build something else already, only because that's, you know, that's, that's the way I work. But, you know, but we, we, we thought that we would, we would design it in a way that we'd live there, we'd be comfortable living there, that is about doing a quality project that's actually giving something back to people who are going to live there afterwards. Yeah. So we designed it also to meet universal access standards. So that means that people who are aging or have an injury can access it and live there comfortably without having to do any modifications other than maybe putting a handrail in. But all the space allowance and, and, the, and the, the walls that need fixings are all designed for that. Very modest cost. And that was slightly wider doorways. So people in walking frames or wheelchairs or people pushing a pram. Yep. So it's full universal access. Or people drinking more than one bottle of wine and perhaps need that yeah, extra space, space to find out where, where you know, where they're going to navigate, to navigate. their way to the back door. So, so allowing for all of that, but also the benefit is you get a sense of space and better breezeways. So there's a, there's an upside there too. We've allowed for that. Um, we've also designed the space in such a way where we um, can see how it will be used differently over time. At the moment, we've both got young families, so we have a playroom in each home. The playroom's designed to then to be the kids' study, then the playroom, so the kids' study can then transition to a home office. So all the pre-wiring's done there for that. And this is all about reducing, um, you know, wastage uh, and, and basically um, uh, improving um, uh, the life cycle you know, value of, of, of these buildings. Uh, and then finally what we did is that whilst we've only got two homes on there at the moment and, and, and for many looking at them, I think, you know, other than a beautiful garden and two high-performance homes, it's still a, a battle axe, you know, subdivided block, we have allowance for two small studios that oh, will okay. actually sit above each of, one above our garage uh, and one um, over uh, the back corner of Lisa's place over the rainwater tanks. Right. And so we allowed for that from the get-go um, where they can go in without um, impacting on any of the surrounding garden. Uh, they are within um, current planning codes and they can be both ancillary dwellings under right. the city's ancillary dwelling scheme and they can be separate either home offices or um, a, a small little um, granny flat, if you like, yeah. for either our kids or someone else to live there. So effectively, you've then got four dwellings on that property, yeah. two family homes, two small little ancillary dwellings providing, I mean, who knows, it could be our, our kids living there still by the time they're 20. They might, um, be, they might be kicking you out Yeah, up yeah. There. So it's all, it's all about <laughs> flexibility. And I think that kind of forward planning is what we often see lacking in, in traditional um, cheap and nasty infield development. And we need to expect more for the bar to be raised. So it is possible. So, you know, I could, uh, I could end up staying here until I'm 102, but in a, in a dwelling suitable for a 102-year-old yeah. to creak around in. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. uh, the kiddies would look after me beautifully, I'm sure. 
and I've got to say, it makes uh, a great deal of financial sense. Um, and of course, that's not what drives everyone, but it is a p- important. Mm. So as people are living in their homes and if they like where they are, um, there's no reason why um, they can't stay there and think about, for example, um, if you've got uh, neighbours who are in a similar situation, the idea of small scale citizen development, yep. where you might go, okay, with my neighbour next door who's in a similar position, we like it here, we're embedded in the, in the neighbourhood, we're, we're connected to the local community, we don't want to get to a point where our home is no longer, it's too big for us or uh, we feel like there's trip hazards and it's not safe for us anymore because we've got age issues. Um, you know, rather than feeling you've got to move from there and all of a sudden there's some, some new place that's foreign to you, there's, there's things you can do to stay put uh, and it may, maybe, for example, teaming up and actually treating the two blocks as one. Yes. Uh, and this is what we call land assembly. It's one of the most challenging things in um, and one of the big barriers, barriers to better uh, infill development is that because we have the, the nature of, of land title and ownership is in particularly these um, older established suburbs, all these big blocks are all privately owned uh, and you're limited to what you can do one block at a time, the things that we've spoken about. Um, but if you start to get two or three or four or five or six of these lots and assemble them. Yeah. The opportunities to work in and around existing canopy tree, housing typology to create really high quality um, shared space. Yeah. Uh, all becomes um, apparent. The challenge is, is that as 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 soon as um, you start talking about land assembly, typically people who own the properties think, "Ching, they yeah, see dollar yeah, signs, yeah. Uh, and there's going to be huge amounts of money made from this, and so it becomes." unviable mm. often there's not a huge amount of money in, in that kind no, of small scale no. land development and it's not without its risks so people shouldn't enter into it lightly do your homework get good design advice you know see a good architect who does this type of thing and there are plenty of great architects in perth doing these small schemes mm. uh with good precedents around the place and as i mentioned earlier there now we are seeing the planning guidance and recognition at both estate planning um, and also local planning level to be more open to creative schemes, particularly when you're demonstrating design excellence, uh, high quality living and retention of tree canopy. It's really interesting because I think you um, hit the nail on the head there. Pardon that building pun. I just Did you see what I did there, Jamie? Just you're so there. smooth, Sabrina. <laughs> um, is build, do your build as if you were going to live in it yourself. Yeah. And that totally changes everything. Yeah. Totally. So I think that's a really lovely thing to keep in your mind. For sure. And I never thought I'd say this, but I feel like texting my sister-in-law and seeing if she wants to go halves in a block. So... (laughs) <laughs> well, it's been it one of the surprising sense. things that's really worked for us. It makes sense. It was kind of born out of necessity to make the whole project stack up. And, uh, I mean, we get on very well and we knew that. But I've got to say um, it's been one of the great outcomes is is having people that we're close to nearby and raising families mm. together and mm. having that connection. So if you can make it work and you get on, then uh, then it can be fantastic. Yeah, I reckon that's pretty special. Hey, just um, just quickly, Josh, to finish up, I know we've talked some big picture stuff, but just to kind of go full circle and back to the the backyard at a time like this when people are, are kind of finding themselves more maybe for the for the first time, what what's your advice to those 14-year-old kids or all those parents who might be trying to start something at their place, you know, for the first time or, or coming back to it after maybe 
not going right the first time. Now is the time to do it. Uh, not only because the sooner you start, the sooner you start growing and eating stuff, but also it is the we're coming into the best time uh, to garden in Perth. Uh, mid to late autumn and Perth winter is fantastic for growing food. Uh, a huge amount of crops we can grow now, of course, all of the leafy greens, the brassicas, which is the cabbages and the broccolis and the kales, um, of course, snow peas, potatoes, garlic goes in now. All of these things grow beautifully. It's one of those times where um, our sandy soil isn't hydrophobic like it is in uh, in, in, in summer. summer. And, and also uh, nothing grows quite like growing on rain. Ah, uh, plants beautiful. just just thrive. So mm. get out there, get into it uh, and enjoy. And it's Naked Gardening Week next week, I think, <laughs> or this weekend. I can't, I'll find out, Jamie, because maybe we could do that on the next podcast. I can't believe I can't believe you just make that up and scheme like that just to see me naked in the garden, Sab. I mean, if you, <laughs> but I want only... you in that swinging chair, Jamie. <laughs> oh, we could have some fun with that. Don't worry. Um, put that beanie to use, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Look, uh, I wish I could say that uh, that it's it's appropriately sized, but they'd be. Uh, <laughs> Plenty going to waste. Um, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Josh, so good to see you, if not from afar. And um, hopefully next time I see you, it's um, it's in person. Thanks so much for the time. And, Sabby, great to see you too. You too. You too, darling. You look fabo. Take care. Great to see you. Bye. All right, Sabby, let's take some questions, some time for you to help out people everywhere. Oh, I love doing it, Jamie. It's the best thing. Hey, um, and questions this week proudly brought to you by Bowman Brush. Um, they've got kind of modern custom brushwood fencing. Uh, head to their website as well, bowmanbrush.com.com rather. That'd be a different website. B-O-W-M-A-N-B-R-U-S-H.com. Because they the make tongue. brushwood. Brushwood, Jamie, is what they make. <laughs> Just before anyone gets any other ideas, it's um so uh, it's made from a melaleuca plant that they've planted on their property, um and it's fully sustainable, um and it makes the most beautiful fencing because lots of little critters live in there like little skinks and lizards and insects and native bees all make their little homes there apart from the fact that it looks beautiful. So they don't they don't pillage the plant, they just take prunings off the plant to make these really lovely fences that allow the breeze to come through and life to come through. So Brett and Haley Bowman have been, um, they've been at it for 20 years, Jamie, 20 how, years. How good's that? They know what they're doing, bowmanbrush.com, go and check it out. Uh, let's get to a few questions. Yes. Okay, far away. Let's start with Susie. Hi, Susie. Uh, she says, hi, guys. Uh, we've got some fresh carry tree stump grindings. Uh, what's the best way to manage this as mulch? Do we need to let it age? Uh, well, freshly ground stumps, uh, yes, you do. Because basically what you've got is a big bundle of carbon. So there's no nitrogen in there. It's all carbon. If you put that wood-based mulch onto the ground, what it's going to do, it's going to suck up all the carbon 
all the nitrogen from the soil to start breaking down. So you're better off with a wood-based mulch of getting, i tell you what you do, you get your broom out, Jamie. So you get oh, your, your outdoor that? broom out and you poke holes in the pile and then you're going to make a solution of blood and bone and water, like a couple of cups of blood and bone to a bucket full of water. And you're going to pour that in your pile and over your pile. And then you're going to go and get your old grandma's blanket or better still a tarpaulin and put over it and leave it cook for three to four weeks and then it'll be beautiful. Ready to go. All right. Yeah, Sounds absolutely. good. Absolutely. Good on you, Susie. Uh, you'll love this one. This is from Victoria who says, I've got two passion fruit trees. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, one of them, <laughs> one of them's flowering, but the other one isn't. I'm doing everything the same with both. What's going on? Uh, could be a different variety of passion fruit. Mm. Can be that one, one passion fruit's hooked into good nutrients and the other hasn't. It's probably a different variety because some passion fruits are more tropical than others. So uh, I reckon it's probably that feed them up. You can't feed passion fruit vines too much like they love it. It's like it's like putting people on a ship in front of a buffet. <laughs> they'll eat maximum whatever's there in front of them. It's like when I used to go to Nonna's house and we'd have the table of Italian food and yes. I would just heap it up, you know, <laughs> until I felt sick. <laughs> Can't resist. Well, that's the proper thing to do, Jamie. Isn't it? Don't want to make Nonna upset, you know. Well, everyone knows. Eat, eat yeah, the more you eat, the more you love her. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, there you go, uh, Vic. Yeah, a few issues there with your passion fruit. Good luck. But one from two ain't bad. 50% hit rate. Yeah. You'd be okay with that. Right. Yeah. Um, let's go to this one. Um, this ain't looking too good. Hey, Sabrina, can you tell me what's wrong with this dwarf peach? It's been in the ground since early Feb. It's free-draining sandy soil with well-rotted cow poop. It's on retic. It gets watered uh, on in the morning. It looks pretty dead. The leaves are pretty dry. <laughs> it's wilted over. It ain't looking too good. It kind of just looks like a dead stick put in the ground, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope no one that he knows that comes to visit him often gave him that as a present because <laughs> it could be tricky, couldn't it? So you'd have to go and stick leaves on. Um, well, I would actually dig it up and replant it. So prune it off because they're all going to go into uh, dormant mode now because they're going to drop their little leaves because the weather's getting a little bit... Uh, getting a little bit cool now so it'll drop all its leaves then it's going to go woohoo I can go to sleep now so dig it up prune it back replant it into I'd get some nice compost and some cow poo a bit of clay and then put it back in the soil and say sweet and lovely things to it might need to say a few sweet and lovely things I mm. reckon to get that one back good luck <laughs> It's a shame it's not Easter, Jamie. You know, a miracle could have been performed on it earlier yeah. on. Just need more than an Easter miracle for that thing, I reckon. Um, <laughs> making the resurrection look like easy work, I think. Um, <laughs> let's go to Terry. Uh, this is last, uh, a few weeks ago, you mentioned a particular natural control agent to eradicate caterpillars. 
that wow. decimate veggie seedlings. Uh, can you share that for me again? Oh, I'd love to share that. Um, so there's two products on the market. Both of them are a type of bacteria. So one is called um, Dipel, D-I-P-L. The other one is called Success Ultra. Um, and it works as a stomach poison, but also as a contact poison. But the thing with caterpillars, Jamie, is the little blighters hide underneath the leaf, so you can't see them. Cunning, isn't it? Little buggers. Cunning. Um, so you have to remember to spray the underside of the leaves. And you know what, Jamie, you can get this clever little device that has um, a gooseneck nozzle. So it automatically, so it's on this long windy neck and it sprays the underneath of the leaf rather than the top of the leaf. Jeez, what clever little sod came up with that? What a ripping oh, idea. I know, someone damn smart. Yeah, there you go. It's a cool looking device. All right, get your hands on one, Terry. Mm. Okay. Hey, let's finish off with this one from Coralie, uh, who says, what are your thoughts on long stem planting? or long trunk planting, as I have an advanced 100 litre red flowering gum to plant. Uh, I've been taught and always use the long stem planting for tube stock with success. Uh, I've also used this technique on an advanced uh, Agonis flexuosa. Did I say that right? Oh, very good. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, look at you go, Mr. Botanicals. Yeah, you know it. Uh, <laughs> and I found that I haven't had to stake it and it's very healthy. Uh, I've been advised that deep planting advanced trees will cause collar rot. There's some conflicting advice I'm getting. What do you reckon, Sab? It's a tricky little thing, this. Now, a long stem planting does work extremely well on uh, tube stock. I definitely would not do it for an older, more mature gum tree, and particularly the red flowering gum because it's highly susceptible to a couple of fungal diseases. If it's, it may even be grafted. So if it's a grafted one, you, you cannot do deep stem planting because you cover the graft. And then what'll happen? The graft, the, the rootstock will just grow and you won't be left with the graft. So only use the deep stem planting on cuttings, uh, on tube stock, uh, and it's fine to use on on other trees, particularly fruit trees, as long as they are not grafted. Beauty. All right. Good luck, Coralie. Uh, Seb, good to see yeah. you. Good to get well, some questions. Damn and, fine uh, to see you as well, my friend. And I, yeah. I see that I'm pleased to because I'm looking at you through the video here because oh, well. uh, we're, we're being very COVID conscious mm. um, that you have a fine wine glass collection behind you there. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's well spotted, Seb. Uh, I've, I've got myself propped up in the kitchen today, uh, and that cabinet is full of wine glasses. And that's not because I've got heaps of friends. It's because I drink a lot of wine, and I'm lazy with the washing up. <laughs> well, I I think I, I, I like it. I like the decor, Jamie. Thank you very much. I'll uh, might use this setting a little more often. Um, why not? Why not? All right, Sab, thanks so much. Thanks to Bowman Brush as well for this one. Uh, you can find them at bowmanbrush.com. Yes, dot .com. That's, That's a C-O-M. That's the one. All right. <laughs> See you, Savvy. <laughs> See you, Jamie.